I think it's very dangerous to blame the internet for a problem that has to deal with drills down to your soul and to your spirit. And if you're looking for problems, you're going to find problems with or without the internet. And if you're looking for peace and beauty, you're going to find it with or without the internet. But just like travel and meet people and see what people are actually doing, then it just gives you a really joyful view on humanity. And you're like, well, yeah. Ketura Lamb is an American writer, an educator, community builder. She hosts people, communities, conversations, and what she hopes is a spiritual and engaging path. Initially, I was drawn to her work for her compelling writing, but particularly her project, The Living Room Academy, interested me. She runs intensive workshops as an experience to pass the knowledge that she describes as the ways we are slowly losing of our grandmothers. As the eldest of 12 children and homeschooled in a family that's four generations without social security cards, Katura and her family has embraced an unconventional life path. Today, we delve into her upbringing, her philosophy, her projects, the impact of technology in her life, her role of adventure, nomadism, and we finally explore her vision for the future, the role of sacrifice in her growth, and other topics. Thanks for listening. Kitra, how do you like to, uh, am I pronouncing your name right? Or is that the correct uh, pronunciation? It's Katura. Katura. Okay, great. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was looking it up. It actually, I guess it's Hebrew Katura, the way you're saying it. Yeah, I grew up in South America, so that sounds more like I would say it, but I, I thought it was Kitra, mm-hmm. but Katura sounds great. Are you in upstate New York right now, or are you in- I am, yeah. I think I heard Andy's voice for a second. Yeah, you did. Yeah, he's in the next room. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, congratulations yeah. again on your engagement. I was, I'm yeah, happy that you guys, uh, well, at least from the internet, it seems like you guys are in love and that's a positive thing. Yeah, I think in this instance, the internet is pretty much uh, realistic and true. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, well, Kitra, why don't we just start? I wanted to, well, I interviewed Andy a few months ago and that was an interesting interview. Um, yeah. And then I saw your work and I was like, man, who is this woman he found and who, who is this person? And I clicked on your website and I read some of your essays and I actually sat with them for a little bit because I didn't want to, you know, approach you yet. Um mm-hmm. When I read some of them again, and you have an interesting project, and I think your age is also interesting as a kind of a alternative lifestyle. So I wanted to maybe understand what your upbringing was like, who you mm-hmm. are, what your projects are, maybe what your writing's about, and just see where we can go from there. Yeah, no, this sounds great. So why don't we just start with your upbringing? I saw in your profile that, well, the barefoot traveling is great, but I was curious about what this uh, no social security card uh, fourth generation uh, person is and what that's oh, about. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So briefly, uh, I suppose I'll try to be as brief as I can. My uh, great grandfather back in the 30s just didn't sign up for the social security when it came out. And I believe there was some sort of like mock of the beast or precursor to it. And just thought it was safer and better to keep his family outside of the system. He refused to sign up for any sort of welfare and he refused to ever have a corporate job. Never would work a nine to five job. Just believe that it was morally wrong to do so. 
and would work odd jobs and raise his family doing that. He had 13 children with his wife, a lot of older boys. So at one point in their lives, it was basically just the father and all the older boys moving from place to place because they, they were very much of a of a nomad type family, always moving all the time because he mostly because he was also an evangelical preacher and liked to preach. So he'd move whenever he heard the opportunity that there was a church that was looking for a new pastor. And he would intern there until they got a regular pastor kind of thing. Not intern, but, you know, just stay there until he, he, they got a new pastor. And then when those couple months were over, he'd go on to the next church. And meanwhile, he's, his sons and him would just kind of work for a local farm as farm hands or doing mechanical work. Eventually, they got into commercial fish, fishing before it required all the licensing and permits that they require nowadays. And my grandfather was one of those 13 kids. He carried on the ways of his father. Uh, raise all of his nine kids out of the system, just doing their own ways, thinking outside the box, creatively trying to live life without having a nine to five job. And then my dad was one of my grandpa's nine kids. And then I'm the oldest of 12 kids. And again, we were like raised, just kind of trying to like carry on the family tradition and being creative and being your own person without conforming to the ways of society, if that makes sense. <laughs> So where, I mean, where was this? Where where were you raised? And obviously in the U.S., but which state or where? Yeah, um, it was really all over. My grandpa was all over California, Florida, Missouri, Arkansas. They eventually settled in like the Missouri, Kentucky, Arkansas, Tennessee area, just all over there. I mean, there's I have quite a lot of great aunts and uncles, and aunts and uncles are just scattered all over. My dad, when he married my mom, they stayed in Missouri until I was 16. And then when we were six, when I was 16, we all moved out to Montana. So this is like, it's definitely spread out quite a bit. We're spread out quite a bit now. But at one point, I would say we were mostly located in Missouri and Arkansas. And then were you guys, you, you talked about your great grandpa being an evangelical pastor. What's your current, I mean, was your dad religious? Did he continue that? Or what's your school of thought on that? Yeah, it's it's very um, complicated and hard to explain because like my grandfather and great grandfather were very zealous in their faith, and my family was too to an extent, but it was less about you know. Uh, I think my dad really wanted to carry on like his family heritage and honor that, and my mom came from a Mennonite background, and my dad was also very fascinated by the Amish, so we kind of played around with a lot of different things for a while like we would always um try to keep as true to my grandpa's beliefs as possible with that he, he was very messianic i don't know if you've ever heard of that uh, it's like a hebraic roots type of thing but he was before the modern a lot of people think of it as like a cult or something but basically non-ethical jews but they're mostly like southern people so my grandpa was a big part of that. My dad was that loosely. We weren't that because of like necessarily religion, but just because that's how we were raised. And it was, and it was, um, I don't know, just the way we were raised. But he was very heavily also influenced by the Amish and by my mom's desire to be more Anabaptist. And so we would choose to live near the Amish and with the Amish as much as possible. And we did live with them for about three years when I was a teenager, a young teenager. And then we left that we went to a few non-denominational churches in Montana and still can say, can continue to be somewhat messianic, but also 
would usually go to churches on Sunday with uh, local ranchers and such. And then I'm just trying to understand your upbringing. So were you totally homeschooled or totally um, just off the grid? Or how did you guys... I mean, did you rent houses? Did your dad have a driver's license? What What was the lifestyle like? Yeah, uh, my grandpa doesn't have any sort of ID or driver's licenses or anything. Uh, my dad did get a driver's license at some point just because it was easier for him to work without being harassed as much. And he, my dad's way of thinking of it was get as little as possible so you can do as much as you like without conforming as much as possible. So I think that the only thing my dad did was get a banking account and a driver's license. And I was mostly homeschooled. We went to an Amish school for about a year or two. I went for about a year. My siblings went for two years. They only teach to eighth grade. So I like graduated and then was done with Amish school and then just continued homeschooling through high school. And what was the homeschooling environment like? Was it your mom or father or did you self-learn or... Did you take a GED? I'm just curious what... It was different for each of my siblings. So I'm the oldest of 12 kids, and we each had a very different way of learning. I loved education and quickly um, surpassed my mom and dad's educational background. They both had like only a... I, don't, I think my mom got like an eighth grade education, which is typical Mennonite education. Still a lot higher probably than a modern day high school diploma. But uh, yeah, by the time I was like 14 or 15, I was definitely doing school mostly on my own maybe even from like 12 years old and then when i was a little older i decided to go ahead and get a high set which is the montana equivalent for a ged and how old were you when you got that i was probably about 20 i i had been done doing school since i was 16 i just was lazy with getting the high set i finally decided on a whim to go in and get it and didn't really need to study very much i just went in and got it and then threw myself a graduation party because I was like, oh, I should have done this years ago. And yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, follow your, I mean, do you have an ID or a passport or what's your approach? What's your relationship with the state? I think it's best to remain outside of society as much as possible in a way that you're still social. Like, I think you should still be a, a good neighbor and a good community member and give to your community as much as possible. Which, funny enough, is easier to do if you aren't involved in like having a corporate job and following all these things that society thinks that you ought to do. So as much as possible, I have like kind of done as my dad did, which is do as little as possible to adhere to my grandfather's heritage, but also make in a way where I'm not harassed by local authorities. So I do have a driver's license, I do have a passport, and I do have a bank account, but I did all that without a social, without a birth certificate, and I have continued doing things in a fashion where I just avoid any route that requires me having a permit or a license in general, like living choices. Do you think you'll get a marriage license? Um, We're currently figuring that out, but the plan is to not get one if it's possible to do so and have a Catholic wedding. Have you converted to Catholicism or... Oh, well, I haven't, but um, that's still like one of those things. It's like, it's, it won't cause an issue one way or the other. Um, I currently go to church with Andy with Mass, and I continue, I plan to continue to do so. I love going to church with him, and I've been learning a lot about it, but yeah, I haven't actually converted. You have the same resistance uh, towards church groups or ch- being part of a larger, I mean, the state is one large organization, but do you have the same kind of wariness towards 
kind of organized religion or organized groups of other forms? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one that I've actually kind of like just been working through myself. I think that my family, my not my immediate family, but like maybe some of my relatives has had some resistance towards anything that was viewed as an establishment, even if it were like a church per se. At the same time, my grandfather and great-grandfather also loved to visit churches and preach <laughs> to any church that would have them preach. They just love preaching. Um, so it's one of those thing, and things that's kind of like, we kind of have a resistance towards it theoretically, but are also heavily involved in a lot of different churches. And I think when it comes to the churches on the local level, like I love attending churches. I love going to a variety of different churches and just comparing how they're so similar and so different all at once and how I can learn from all these different types of churches. And I love to write about, like it's one of my favorite things to write about is just some of the church hopping I've done. The Catholic church in particular, if I had any sort of reservations with them, it wouldn't be because of my family's influence as much as maybe some of the Anabaptist literature I read as a teenager when I was going to Amish school, because a lot of the Amish actually have a bit of a, a I don't know, they just have a little bit of a tense relationship with Catholicism because of some of their history. And I was definitely influenced by a lot of Amish novels as a teenager with their, like, their view in Catholicism. Um, but I'm also realizing, like, the Catholic Church nowadays is, is very different than it was back in the medieval days. Even the hierarchy of it all is very different. So that's just been fun to like, to like see it. And it's just, I don't know. I also find the church to be very beautiful and some of the, um, heavily into aesthetics. I love aesthetics and the Catholic church is um, probably one of the most aesthetic churches that you can attend, at least in the States. And the politics of it don't matter so much in the States either, because it doesn't really, like on the local level, at least a lot of the local churches just are very simple and very beautiful, which I love. It's funny that you bring up aesthetics. Um, Maybe mm -hmm. we can actually jump to that because I sent your project, which we'll bring up in a second, to some of my friends who live in New York and work in fashion. Mm -hmm. And we were just kind of analyzing and looking at your photography choices and layout choices, and they seem very contemporary and very mm -hmm. actually plugged in. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, joke that there's kind of a little house on the prairie vibe, uh -huh. <laughs> but in a more contemporary way so i'm curious how you're approaching you said aesthetics are really important to you what what does that actually mean what is that yeah that's 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 a good question and that's interesting that you said there's a contemporary approach it probably has something to do with like even though we had a very eccentric upbringing i read a lot of literature and i especially loved both the classic and the contemporary fiction equally probably and read a lot of both and that's probably somewhat influenced just the how I take my pictures, <laughs> the types of things that I love. For me, I guess aesthetics are just something that I think highlight the natural beauty of something that shows shows the character of it and the nature of it in a way that's both real and authentic without making it ugly, degenerate, if that makes sense. And I also love it if it's especially real. Like, I don't find a dress beautiful if it's polyester. Like, the aesthetics to me are somewhat false if it isn't also quality. So, continuing on aesthetic choices, maybe we can people who aren't familiar with projects. I, I guess the main one is this Living um, Room Academy. Could you maybe summarize that and how aesthetics fall into that and what the goal of that project is and what your experience is so far with that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, it was something I did for summer, this last summer in particular. 
And I was encouraged to do it um, by a few older women that I had worked with and volunteered with. They just knew that I had had a little home on my family's property and then it was set up so that way I had like a, all my sewing stuff at, at hand and a lot of projects was going on. And, and they said how like a lot of young women would, would be blessed if they could spend some time in my home with me doing these things and learning these things that they wished they could learn but just didn't have the opportunity to do so. And so I was kind of like considered what they had told me and realized that my home was almost set up to be a school for other young women to come in. So I eventually advertised it um, on Twitter and through a couple of ministries I had worked for and had young girls come and stay with me for two weeks at a time. And the idea was for them to learn how to sew and cook and clean, but to do so in a way that encouraged them and helped them feel capable in doing so. Not just like, here's the tools of how to do this, but this is also how you can keep your mood happy and like by drinking water and eating the right food and wearing the right clothes. Like here, here's how you can have a successful day and feel successful and not get to the end of the day feeling all tired and grouchy and moody because you're eating good stuff for your hormones and you're wearing things that actually make your make you feel comfortable and make you feel pretty at the same time. So we focused on, I guess, aesthetic of dress, but also the, like the quality we were wearing. Like I encourage girls to wear linen and cotton and to dress in a way that actually highlighted who they felt to be, not just like dressing like how they might normally dress if they were just going to any any place. And also like we just also focused on, it wasn't just about getting work done and learning how to sew and knit. It was also about having a good time together having good conversations, reading literature together. We did a lot of letter writing and we took walks. And <laughs> also just because it was an intense program, I encouraged the girls to take naps and we often they would have naps in the afternoon and read and just a lot of quiet time too. Who are the, the audience for these programs? I mean, you said you approached like local ministries, but did you get people from outside your community or more urban kind of people and women? Yeah, I actually didn't have anyone local come. Everyone that came flew from like other states, out of state. And they mostly came, I was thinking about half of the applicants came from a ministry that I had worked for. And this was a ministry that writes a magazine for our mothers, stay-at-home mothers. And their daughters who read that magazine, who like, who I guess had been thinking about being homekeepers someday, saw this program and just thought it was a good opportunity for them to learn how to keep a home which wasn't really the purpose of my, my course. My course wasn't teaching women how to be stay-at-home mothers per se as much as good community builders. But like it was the same the same thing for the same, for different outcome, I suppose. So like I had a lot of girls that were interested in from that magazine for that reason to be homekeepers. And then I had quite a few people from Twitter interested in it just because they were interested in being um, more feminine and just more capable as a woman doing womanly things and never having an opportunity to know how to do those womanly things. And I think the women from Twitter actually kind of got the point of my course a little bit better than the girls from the court, from the ministry, just because they, the girls from the ministry were more about like trying to become like the perfect mother and the perfect wife. And I can't really make you the perfect wo woman and the perfect wife or mother, because like, I don't know, like no one knows if, if they're calling, if they're going to be called to marriage and to motherhood, but they do, we all do know as women that we are women who 
can have natural gifts. And if you just focus on being a good woman and being a good community builder and doing the things that you can currently do in your phase of life, then it was a course I felt like that could better equip them in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. In some of your writing, you described it as you're trying to develop spontaneous womanhood. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by that? And I'm curious yeah. what womanhood actually means to you. You know, on the internet, you always see those memes about, you know, people unable to define what a woman is, but I think you can. Mm -hmm. So maybe yeah. you can expand on that. Yeah. So um, I, I think I mostly, when I was talking at the school, talked about spontaneous hospitality. Um, I might have a couple of times said spontaneous womanhood, uh, but I don't remember what I was referring to, to if I was talking about that. We're talking about like womanhood in general. I just think it means being this, being spontaneous, yes, and being hospitable and being open to just trying things that are uncomfortable, not because we want to become gruff, but because we want to make other people comfortable and in a way that actually like helps the community at large. In order to actually be a good member of your community, you it takes a certain level of spontaneity that allows you to step outside of your comfort zone put the thing down that you're currently doing, maybe bake, bake something or cook something for the person that just showed up at your door. Forget about your current frame of mind and just be open to what this person means that's before you. And I think that's what mostly what it means to be a woman is like learning how to sacrifice self. And of course, like this is for anybody, but in specific, I was speaking to women, learning how to sacrifice the self to make other people feel like they're in a good, safe space where it's warm and comfortable and cozy. And doing so in a way that shows them beauty and hope in a, in a world where you often don't see any of that. So what has the response been from just the internet in general? I had one friend ask, mm -hmm. you know, are most of your followers men or are most of them women? Are people... I mean, he, one of my friends seemed skeptical of your project and he said that, oh, he's like, you know, in a mean-spirited way, said, oh, I bet it's just a lot of men who wish their wives were like this. Yeah. So I'm curious what the res response is or who's following your work. Yeah. It's it's funny. I actually have mostly fem a female audience. If I had a male audience, I don't hear from them very often. It might be because I'm a little bit of a prude online and I don't respond to any guys who message me. And I usually don't respond to most guys is um like re replies and so maybe i'll have a guy that like will follow me for a bit but slowly i'll notice like oh i'm not hearing from that person anymore like on my post because i just don't respond to most guys but i do respond to any woman that reaches out to me and have created quite a few good friendships on the internet that are of, with young women i do see that my for me at least because it's what i encourage and what i feed i would say that my audience is probably 80 to 90 percent women and um, when I've checked my demographic, even on like my Instagram, if I remember right, like I had two large demographics and one was like the majority of it was, was women between the ages of 18 and 35. And then the other was like men, older men, like middle-aged men. And I don't interact with those. So they're probably just like men, you know, like are, are stalking and creeping on women's accounts or whatever. But even that demographic was pretty low. It was like... I don't remember the actual size of it. It might have been like 20% or, I mean, it's probably kind of high, but I feel like for the type of account that I was running, it wasn't like, at least it wasn't like 90% male audience. It was still a pretty high percentage of a female audience. 
and a pretty young female audience at that. And then what is the response in that 80% female? I mean, are most of them fans? Are most of them supporters? Or are they? I asked that because I asked one of my friends who had a Mormon upbringing mm-hmm. and she lives in an urban New York City. And I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And she's like, oh, it reminds me of when the Mormon girls at 13 would go kind of be separated and learn a lot of the home homemaking skills and whatnot. But the one thing she that was interesting to her was that she was very positive of you running a business out of, she called it your lap, in the sense that out of your home, where mm-hmm. it has to go to a job, a nine to five. And she felt, I felt like she had a bit of jealousy towards your project. So I'm curious- yeah. What women, how how do you feel, how do they interact with your projects? I, I do definitely have a little bit of that. I Especially when I was younger, because I, of course, at, when, I, when I was like, leaving my teen years in my early 20s, I had a, I had some kind of high, high, high goal visions that seemed impossible to a lot of people I talked about, because I was never interested in having a regular job. I was just like, that's a waste of time. It doesn't actually feed to any of my purpose or my my passions and you don't make very much money doing it but everyone also thinks like this is the way it is and you're not going to make it at life if you don't start out with like a fast food job you know that pays you 13 15 17 dollars an hour um so i didn't have had a lot of that and then I, when, I, when i got to a point where i was like i'm actually doing all right babysitting and cleaning and i'm working less and i'm able to travel and write and so and do all these things I love doing. People didn't believe me. Like I would have I would tell people to their like people I knew, I'd be like, This is what I'm doing and this is how much money I'm making and this is what I'm able to do with this money because I don't spend it on regular stuff that a lot of young girls spend their money on. And they would tell me to their face that it just wasn't true. Like come to my face like like, yeah, that just isn't how it is. But as it became steadily more obvious as like, oh, you actually can budget your money and you can make decent money just doing regular stuff with people. Plus also learning for this, because like if you're working with a bunch of old ladies, you're also learning more about the things that you want to do. Because a lot of these women know how to sew and how to cook. And you might learn a recipe from this woman that you clean for and learn how to turn a hand better from this other lady that you clean for and how to do this and how to do that. I think it did start to become more obvious and the girls that I would hang out with instead of like disbelieving me or mocking me would actually want to end up hanging out more often than not. And I, and and it turned into like this really beautiful thing where it lasted for about, well, up until the time I left Montana recently, I, for the last three or four years, I've started hosting at least monthly, if not sometimes weekly meetings at my house where just the women from the different communities would come together and we would just spend in the evening. At first, when I first started at about four, years ago i was teaching everyone how to darn and how to knit but now when they come together just like they know how to do it now and they're just having fun um so i'd say overall the reaction to it has steadily grown better there's still people sometimes who don't fully believe like it's real and they think sometimes it's a gimmick but i also don't make a lot of money off of it the the meetings at my home i don't make anything off of just people coming together and we're all having fun and talking and sewing together and I basically just basically taught my friends to do what I was doing, and now we have fun together. And I didn't really make all that much money off of the Living Room Academy classes this summer. It really was just something fun I was doing because some old lady said I should do it. And when people actually applied and be like, I would love to do this, but I don't have the money, I'd be like, just pay what you can afford. And so I made that full tuition. 
well, I got maybe full tuition once. Um, but I didn't get full tuition for most of the students. And because uh, I, I didn't really care about the money. It was just mostly like, I want to see women be better equipped doing the things they love to do and feel like they can do it and feel like a sort, sort of hope about themselves in a way that's going to like boost their morale. So, well, and then as for people on social media, they're often more than not people who are doing similar things and feel inspired to see more people like themselves. I had a lot of followers that I also follow, just like, we're all like basically patting each other on the back. It's like, oh, I love your quilt and I love the socks that you're knitting and I love this thing that you're making. It's just kind of fun. And then I have a lot of girls who are interested in doing what I'm doing and will sometimes message me and be like, how can I teach myself how to tat lace? Or how can I make this waistband fit me better? And sometimes it's just like a lot of like following each other to ask each other tips of how to, how to learn to do this on my own. Kitura, when you, one of your upbringings, you were raised with the Amish for a few years. They have the famous mm -hmm. uh, rum springer. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have kind of an experience where you left your family or your circle to venture out? Yeah. So not all Amish do that. And the community that we lived with was actually opposed to rum springer because they didn't think it was necessary, like a necessary phase. Um, it's You'll see it more in like, Maybe Pennsylvania Amish will do it, but the majority of Amish in other states don't really do the Rumspringa that I know of. Uh, my family, we're, we're very independent. All of us were just raised very independently, um, very self-taught, self-driven, self um, lot very introverted and extroverted all at the same time. Very eccentric bunch of people. I like to joke sometimes that we're a cult, but then I'll also clarify that the only reason we are a cult is because my grandpa had a bunch of daughters that he raised to be very outspoken. And then my dad did the same. It's just like, they, we encourage everyone to speak their mind and to speak it boldly and loudly and to argue and fight if they if their opinions aren't getting heard. Mm -hmm. I didn't have as much of a need for rumspring as maybe some kids in my type of upbringing would feel the need to have. I definitely went through a phase where I was like, oh, my family's crazy and I need a break for them. I think I was like 18 when I left home the first time and I just went to work for a ministry and I was like my, my rad thing. And like the wildest thing I did was like, I started dancing and it was like barn dancing. It wasn't like even like very scandalous dancing, but I wasn't even very like rebellious about it. I called my parents and I was like, I want to start dancing. And they're like, well, this is what you want to do. Then you should go for it. And so I did it. And um, I would say the extent to my uh, rebellion was I decided I wanted to start doing things that my parents didn't completely agree with, like traveling alone. And instead of asking for permission, I just told them, like, I'm going to start traveling alone. And they were like, well, we don't think this is a good idea. And I was like, well, I'm still going to do it. And they were like, well, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. So it's kind of like one of those things where my dad would make it clear, like, I don't think this is a good idea, but I'm not going to fight you about it or excommunicate you over it because he also doesn't think that's right. So he has, for the most part, just kind of let us figure out our own way. Where some people might have thought we were being rebellious, our parents were just like, well, that's just how Katuri is. You can't really, like, tie her down and make her do something. Otherwise, we did. We probably would just, it would be a losing battle. <laughs> so did you go to any urban, like L.A. or, you know, San Francisco, New York, try to see what big city life was like? Or was that just unattractive to you? Yeah, I wasn't really attracted to big city life. 
Uh, I went to Germany. That was my ma first major trip, and I wasn't planning to go to a city. I was just looking to go anywhere in, in Germany, and it happened to be to Stuttgart was where I got a position as an au pair. Mm -hmm. And that was huge for me. Um, I think it was like, what, 90,000? The population was like 90,000 people. And, of course, it was one of those towns that you mostly traverse in train or foot or bicycle. And I would I, I learned to take on free quite frequently and regularly. So that was kind of fun for me. It wasn't necessarily something like, oh, I'm in a big city and now, like, so many exciting things could happen. I still mostly, even when I was in the city, seek out parks and just spend, like, my time out off in the parks reading was how I like this to do it. So I definitely found out pretty quick that I wasn't like into the cities. But then when I came back to the States, I started road tripping in my station wagon. And again, I was what I would do is I would actually like follow interesting people on Facebook who some people might consider like cultish or just really strange. And I would um, message them and be like, I would like to come and learn more about your family's ways. Can I spend a day or a weekend with your family? And then I would just drive all over the states to stay with these random people. Uh, sometimes they were just obscure families. Sometimes I stay with people like from the Twelve Tribes or some other, like a couple other like obscure cults that probably you wouldn't have heard of. But what are some of these experiences like? I mean, what are the Twelve Tribes? A lot of these people, um, I would stay with them. I would stay with them in a way that uh, I would stay with an individual and not be like the entire group. So I would have pleasant experiences because if you stay with an individual, it's always going to be like, not always, but more than often, welcoming experience. And people like the 12 tribes, they're very messianic. So that was kind of comfortable for me just because I was used to like a messianic atmosphere. They were definitely also very different than my family. And a lot of those just because they had perfected some rituals of their own that were different. But I enjoyed their dancing. I enjoyed their food and they have this like eccentric way of eating with metal chopsticks, which I just found to be quaint and fun. And they have an interesting way of dressing. And then they have the like, I don't know if you know much about them, but I don't. I'm, this is totally new to me. I don't know what metal chopsticks oh, okay. are. Is that like Korean chopsticks? Probably. I I, I don't know where they get them from, but they they like they might be like aluminum or something. But they're really lightweight and made out of some sort of metal, and they. That's what they eat with. They're very much into aesthetics too. Like if they have yellow delis, they call them, scattered across the states. They have these little cafes. They're just like very beautiful inside. They have very ornately designed furniture and yellow curtains, and the buildings are actually yellow, hence the name Yellow Deli. And they have just delicious food. They're usually kosher. I think they're kosher. Yeah, they're kosher because they're messianic. And they're also known for liver mate. I think they've somewhat popularized yerba mate in some far fashion. At least some people say they have. They also have like a lot of scandal around them because there was supposedly some sort of like problem in the leadership at one point in history. I also know some ex-members of the 12 tribers though, and I've heard some of their stories and you get a little bit, some people are like, well, yeah, there was problems in leadership, but the overall the group was pretty good. And some people have like, some some tra traumatizing experiences, or they say it is, but most people who are in and out of the 12 tribes have, like, I feel like a, a pretty balanced perspective overall, and they're like, yeah, this wasn't for me, but I learned a lot, and it was a beautiful experience. So is this part it, of your church jumping? 
it was part of my travels when I was driving across the states. I was just learning, trying to learn from different people just to see how, how they did things and how they raised their families and how they built their communities. And any, if anything, it was actually me trying to develop a repertoire of hospitality and community building and skills. I would also try to learn, like, I would fill out this notebook and have people write down, like, frugal uh, tips for everyday living that take, like, creative, outside-the-box thinking. And, like, I would have these different people, you know, just fill that out in the notebook. But I'd also, like, do random things. Like, I went with a couple of friends I had met from Facebook, uh, like, maybe the previous year, but they had become, like, good friends of mine. And we uh, took a trip to New York City. And we actually, the surprising thing is I didn't really like cities, but we enjoyed our time in New York City quite a lot. And Andy said it was probably because it was during COVID. Like, there was hardly anyone there. And we pretty much just had our, an easy time getting around. And we mostly just thrift shop there, of course. So if you're going to thrift shop, that's going to be pretty easy to navigate to. Not a lot of people in thrift stores. Katura, and- could you tell me a little bit more? You you you, you seem very uh, knowledgeable in using the internet. Some people might have reservations and opposition to. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your relationship is with, I guess, social media and the internet technology. Yeah. So I actually wasn't allowed to use internet at all growing up. I think I was probably 19 before I first used it. I'd only known how to type because when I was like 14 or 15, I found a typewriter at a thrift store and a book on how to type. And I learned how to type. And then I went to work for a ministry when I was 18 or 19 and was required to like use a computer all day, every day for like nine to five, five days a week. So I like had a crash course in using a computer. And I hadn't told the way I hadn't used a computer before because I didn't want to affect whether or not I got the job and I knew that it wouldn't take me very long to learn. So I learned how to use a computer just by basically observing her. I had a friend in the office who gave me some pointers. And after like working for her for a few months, I decided to go ahead and get a laptop of my own to write at that point, I had been writing all my stuff out by hand for my stories and my fiction and stuff. But once I get the laptop, um, I wanted to ask my parents if I could get Facebook because I wanted to be able to stay in contact with some of the friends I was meeting as I was working for this ministry. And I was starting to travel a little bit and just wanted to have a way of staying in touch with people who I was meeting. I think it just kind of took off from there uh, because... Uh, when you, I think it's part of like having a different sort of like my Facebook just has like a lot of pictures of my life. I would have a lot of interesting friend requests from people, and then if I thought they looked interesting, I might accept. And then if I would, I would maybe I'd stalk some of their pictures and be like, oh, it looks like they're doing really neat stuff. Like these people raise water buffalo. I want to go meet them. Like who raises water buffalo in Alabama? You know, uh, I see this other family like. They post beautiful pictures of their house, and I'd just be like, I want to see how what their house looks like. It looks like a house that I should maybe just be in for a while and take in the surroundings and have inspiration for when I want to start decorating my own house. So I think it was just like a lot of scrolling and thinking, oh, this person's interesting, and, you know, like, what's the worst they could say if I messaged them? They, they might not answer. They might be like, oh, we're not open to guests. But you find that people love... People love having the chance to be hospitable if you let them. And just reaching out to people and being like, I think you're interesting. Can you teach me some of your ways? People love that. And so I would just do that. Like if I saw interesting people and 
when you start seeing one interesting person and reach out to them, then you have more suggestions happening in your timeline and just more and more interesting people end up coming up. But not only that, if someone knows that you're like traveling, and let's say that I'm on my way from Tennessee to New York, and I just stay with this family in Tennessee. They're like, well, I know someone in Harrisonburg, Virginia, you ought to stay with. And then you go there and they're like, oh, but you should make a detour in Pennsylvania because there's some really cool people there that you should stay with. And it doesn't end up being just social media, but you end up like meeting people all the way between those two destinations. Like maybe a half dozen more people because of the first person that you stopped in and met. And for the most part, it's always good. I've only ever like had one or two experiences where like, oh, this was probably a little sketchy. And I probably shouldn't have done this. So Katura, what do you think of other people in your generation? Like, the, I guess, I don't know if you're in the TikTok generation or what generation. Yeah. You, are you skeptical? You use the word degeneracy. I'm curious. The internet, you use it in a very positive way. I'm just curious. You only had a few dark experiences, but what are your reservations on the internet or technology, if you have any. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's very dangerous to blame the internet for a problem that has to deal with, boils down to your soul and to your spirit. And if you're looking for problems, you're going to find problems with or without the internet. And if you're looking for peace and beauty, you're going to find it with or without the internet. Of course, we each have times where we're like, oh, I'm using this too much. And this is probably controlling me more than I'm using as a tool. But this doesn't just come to the internet. This, like, even as a reader, I've had times in life where I'm like, oh, I'm not actually treating literature as a joy. I'm starting to, like, use it as a cope. And so I should probably stop reading and go on a walk, you know. And if you ever come to, like, a point anything, like, there's been times where I'm like, okay, right now I'm not using social media as a way to actually connect with people. I'm using it as a way to disconnect from people. So I should probably stop using the internet right now. And so I think it just takes being very aware of why you're doing what you're doing and being intentional about it, whether or not it's using the internet or reading a book or baking food or knitting socks, you know, like you just want to make sure that everything is actually being done in a way that's making, making life around you what you, what you're trying to make it. I, I, I obviously do think that there's certain things that just cannot be used in a positive way. I have, I ha do not and would not ever advocate for using TikTok or Snapchat. I think they're both porn-ridden and evil sites that do not have anything good to offer. I think they're disgusting and definitely, definitely degenerate. They, they, yeah, they just don't offer anything good. And anything that you can do that people argue for on TikTok, you can also do on YouTube. So I don't, I just don't get that get the TikTok phase that's going on. And I, most of my friends, I think, agree with me on TikTok. None of, none of my, no one in my age group uses TikTok that I know of in my circles. Most of the people that use TikTok are, I think, are in my circles are teenagers. And they're definitely in, using the internet in a way that isn't impacting their life positively. If you had children, would you, what's your approach to, you didn't start using the internet until 19, would you replicate mm -hmm. that or do it differently? It's really hard to know what I'll actually end up doing, of course. And Andy and I have definitely talked about this a lot. Like we definitely want our children to be raised in a way where they're, they would go to a book before they Google it. And they would go and ask each other questions and provoke conversation before, you know, joining 
I read it for them. For them. I definitely want to have children that just like think and talk and do things before opening a laptop. And if this means like, I'm I'm definitely considering like once I have kids, like I'm probably going to get rid of my phone and like just use internet less myself just because I'll be in a phase of life where I need to connect with other people less and just connect with my own children more. And um, we'll, we'll make whatever sacrifices I have to do to make that possible. At the same time, I, I I don't know. Yeah, I feel a little conflicted because we do live in a day where, in a day and age where technology is a little bit, it's a little bit more of every day than it was even when I was a teenager. I, it was very easy for my family to live without it. <laughs> and it's getting to be less, almost less so that way. But I still think that it is possible to raise a family without the internet. And of course, they're going to be exposed to it when they go to relatives' places and see it with cousins and such. And I think in those opportunities, I just have to, it just needs to be presented in a way where like, this isn't evil. It just isn't your time yet to have this tool and to use this tool. Meanwhile, read these books that you have and go play in the woods and such. I'm not going to say it. But, curious, yeah. about, curious about your writing practice. Is that what you consider your main practice? Is that or community building? When you introduce yourself, what, how do you introduce yourself usually as a teacher passing on grandmother's lessons? How do you usually introduce yourself to people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on the circle, to be honest. I don't usually introduce myself along with what I'm doing. What I'm doing just kind of like happens to be whatever it is in the moment. A lot of people have thought of me as a writer more than anything else. For the majority of my life, just because a lot of people know that I write and have read my writing, I definitely don't ever introduce myself as a teacher. I might, it might come from the conversation three quarters of the way through, like, oh yeah, I've taught some courses and I've done these. Often, if I'm having a conversation with someone then, that I've just met, they've come and talked to me because they've noticed that I was tatting in church or I was knitting this thing and they want to know what I was knitting. And then we'll it'll strike up this conversation about like different projects we've been working on. And so it's just, I guess it's just a different, different approach to introducing yourself because there's obviously a variety of things that people do in life and think that most of the people I meet and interact with immediately assume that there's one thing I do that defines who I am, if that makes sense. Well, I ask because I think that's often a question. When you went to New York, that's often the first mm -hmm. thing people ask, right? Whereas yeah, in, other, yeah. you know, in other cultures, sometimes they never ask at all what you do, mm. what you are. So yeah. maybe sometimes people ask what family you're from or. Oh, yeah. So yeah, like how you said, different yeah. circles have different answers. Expanding on your writing. I think some of your writing seems quite political. What, what's your approach to politics? Or I think you're mm -hmm. maybe a libertarian. It's hard to tell. Uh, yeah. Conservative. I, I, I don't know. What, what's the term you would use or what do you explore? Yeah. I guess I wouldn't use any term because, uh, Politics for me are, depending on my mood and my current phase of life, sometimes I'm really into them and sometimes I'm not. Right now is a phase where I'm just, I just could care less about what's going on. Normally, uh, if I'm heavy into politics, it's because my dad is probably running for office. And both the times that he was running for office, I just stayed up to date with what was going on, especially the first time because I, I campaigned for him and canvassed the neighborhoods and such like that. And I was also like, there's a few other friends I had that was like doing things. So I 
wanted to help them and would do so by just talking to people and door knocking and mailing out flyers and all that kind of stuff. And during those times, of course, my mind is more in the political atmosphere. So my writing tends to be a little bit more political. My dad is somewhat libertarian and somewhat anarchist. So I definitely dabbled in all those arenas. But depending on who I'm hanging out with is kind of who I am. If I'm hanging out with a bunch of liberals, then I'm probably very conservative. If I'm hanging out with a bunch of conservatives, then I'm almost quite liberal. If I'm hanging out with libertarians, I'm not libertarian. If I'm with a bunch of people who are very anti-libertarianism, then I'm somewhat libertarianism. And it's not that I'm trying to be contrary. It's just that my my political beliefs are so large that when I start hanging out with people who have very defined ways of thinking, or at least very they've put labels on it, it just doesn't quite fit, and then I don't quite fit into that. Do you think your, I guess, hospitality is a project, a political project? I think it transcends anything political. I think it definitely matters a lot, and that if people had a a more open view of just keeping their front door unlocked, or at least in the spiritual sense, and being open to people coming and dropping in and sharing meals more, that we would have a lot of, I think we'd have a lot less political issues in general, and that it'd start to become more of a local issue, and that people would probably get along better and just realize, like, oh, we can have a meal about this. And at the end of the meal, it's like, oh, yeah, we disagree, but at least the food was good kind of thing. And if that started happening more, I think it, I think it, I, I'm, I'm definitely a bit of an idealistic, and I know that this isn't something that's like probably nationally possible, but I think at a local level, it does create more goodwill towards each other if we just have more hospitality and not discourage political discourse, because I don't think that's good to shut people up because there might be a tense conversation happening. But it can help us, like, at least be curious about what the other person's thinking and consider and what their side of it and not try to change their mind and also change our minds either, but maybe be swayed in a more um, understanding way. Do you think that um, idealism comes from your age or from an actual openness? Mm, that's good. I don't know. I feel like I'm actually more idealistic now than I probably was at, like, 16. <laughs> And I think it comes from my experience with traveling and just meeting a lot of cool people and sharing a lot of cool stories. I think if you just don't read the news and don't listen to all these political podcasts, I mean, I've gone through my phases of doing all that, but just like travel and meet people and see what people are actually doing, then it just gives you a really joyful view on humanity. And you're like, well, yeah. There probably are really horrible places in the States and then in the world, but there's also a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good things. And it just makes you feel a lot better about the world and more inclined to do your own part in it because you see that other people are doing it and that they are making a difference in their own communities, which is what matters at the end of the day. Katura, I have a friend who asked, what's your advice for dating? <laughs> um. That's funny. Huh. I guess for women particularly, it's to not be so picky and just to be open to opportunities that seem maybe not quite up your alley. And if something's good, don't reject it. 
And also, like, I think women should trust their gut less and just and just try and do what actually is like go for something that's actually good rather than what Hollywood presents as the good thing, if that makes sense. Like, Tara, talking about Hollywood, do you interact with mass media or what do you, I mean, do you watch TV? Do you watch, I'm just curious what your interaction, you know, a lot of literature, obviously, but what, what's your, do you consume mainstream or corporate type content or not? Mm, it's, it's, I'm going to have a really funny answer for this. Probably it's going to sh- probably shock you, but I actually have watched a lot of movies. My dad, surprisingly enough, loves movies. and. um a lot of my siblings really aren't very intellectual and they just like movies. And so our family is going to do something social. Even since we were little, like my dad would just be like, oh, it's time to watch a movie kind of thing. And even if it was the Amish, sometimes we would, he'd, he would uh, bring home the, this little tiny tablet that was like the size of a encyclopedia and we'd all gather in this like little tiny tablet and watch a movie. So... I have watched a lot of films. I would go through phases of life where I'd be like, oh, this even. I remember like, I went through one when I was like 11, another one when I was like probably 17, and I would not watch movies with my family. But then I'd feel really sad and lonely and be like, oh, everyone else is watching a movie and I want to be with them. So I would leave that phase really quick and then just go back and watch movies with them. My family also has like a really fun way of watching movies. So we don't just watch a movie and love it. We watch a movie and we talk about it the entire way through it. And it's like a very social, extroverted experience where it's like, oh, that person was stupid. Or why is that person doing that? Or I bet this is going to happen. It's like, you're, it's like almost going to a horse race, you know? You're just like talking the whole time and and speculating what's going to happen in the plot. We watch some things just because we know we're going to hate it. And we watch some things because we think we're going to like it kind of thing. Victoria, how do you, I mean, connecting on the other end, what is your mm-hmm. spiritual framework i i understand it's in the christian faith but how are you developing your moral kind of code i definitely don't think that my moral code is developed through church like a lot of people do and yet i do think that visiting a lot of churches has helped somewhat in that it's helped me understand like the christian community at large but i think a lot of my my faith has been shaped just from my grandfather's advice as a kid, I remember when I was like nine years old, I was just asking him like what I could do better to like understand faith um, from like my own perspective and understand what he was saying to me better. And he just told me to get a copy of the Bible and to read through it and to get a strongest concordance and look up anything that I was ever confused. And so I took that advice seriously and read through the Bible several times by the time I was 13 or 14 and used that encyclopedia that I found quite a bit. And I would write up like little bits of essays and send them to him, sometimes disagreeing with some of his own things that he believed in. But he loved that because he just loved that I was thinking and not just trying to like go along with what he was teaching us. And I think that experience as a kid greatly shaped how I, when it comes to the dogma of it, at least this fun discourse that we get to have with people about like what this means and what this means. What faith, faith actually means like on a spiritual level, though, I think just boils down what Jesus talks about in the New Testament, like loving your neighbor and loving God and following his example in general and sacrifice himself for, for others and thinking less of ourselves and destroying the flesh, flesh or the fleshly desires 
to walk in a way that's like upright and loving. And I think it it doesn't necessarily like the like the the way we do it doesn't always necessarily matter as long as it's pleasing in a way that's like pleasing to others and like beautiful and kind of like this sweet aroma or like this sweet perfume like it talks about in Chestnut like how we are peculiar people. I don't think that means like we're peculiar people and that we're odd and that we're obnoxious, but that we're like very like, yeah. What is that? That is very delightful. I'm very glad to have just seen that kind of thing. Like where people witness us and they're like inspired somehow or like overjoyed just to be alive because God's people are there. The reason I asked about your framework is that in one of your essays, you write about redefining gossip. I'm mm-hmm. curious if you could expand on that. Yeah. It, it seems like you have a dialectic in your own writing where you're often debating both sides of something. And I saw mm-hmm. that in your essay. I've gotten that before. Yeah, I I think I like to take things that are a little bit contrary and controversial sometimes and then play with it in a way that simplifies it into just the basics of what it means to be a a good loving neighbor, if that makes sense. And when I was putting out the word gossip, I think I was just hearing like these people, I, I was hearing a lot of people say things like, oh, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that because it's considered like the right thing to do societal. But maybe it would have actually been more kind to do this. And like, I hear people throw around the word gossip a lot. And I am really intrigued by etymology in general and just like, love looking word, words up and it might that might stem back from my days of like being heavily um involved in the strong concordance but looking at the word gossip one day and i realized that it had some connections to uh gospel and i just started thinking about how like gossiping and talking and sharing the good news is almost the, the same thing when you take slander out of it and how it can actually be helpful to have a community where the women all talk to each other and they're all egging each other on to do the right thing, whether it's like going over and delivering um, meals to this family who just got really sick. And how, how do they know the family just got sick if someone hadn't been telling someone else that, oh, did you know so-and-so's children all have colds right now? And someone else is like, oh, really? We should you know think about that poor mother and how she's trying to feed them all. So maybe we should make her some some soup and just like how like people are so tight-lipped and so private that they forget like there's actually some value in gossiping when it's actually caring for one another and how that's that can be a good thing and how it spreads just sort of like good news among the community to know what other people are doing without being directly told but hearing this from like some other person who told some other person of course, there's always a lot of bad ways for gossip to be done. And I think I wrote a little bit about how the bad the bad side of that and why it gets a bad reputation. But overall it shouldn't it shouldn't deter us from like having a, a good, healthy view of what it means to tell the truth about people in a community. So Katara, what's what do you envision for the future for yourself, for your project, for your family? What are you focusing on right now? Um well, obviously like I'm in a big transition right now trying to readjust to like a new location and getting ready planning for a wedding and all that stuff is taking up a lot of time and mind space right now just thinking about like what my new community is going to look like 
um, discovering what my new community is going to look like and making a wedding dress and gathering um, all the details for what it means to like plan a wedding. I don't know. I really want to return to some more of my writing. I've been doing so much traveling and so much event planning these last few years that I've given my writing a back burner. And I really want to kind of bring that a little, give that a little bit more priority. And um, of course, like I also want to be heavily involved in Andy's writing and support that. It's always kind of been a bit of a dream to, you know, like be kind of like Tolstoy's wife, you know, helping your husband with his writing. Yeah. I've always thought it was kind of sweet. And then um, just like making our clothing or like at least keeping it up and just making a home that's cozy and filled of like literature and books and songs. I, I love music and just like making music and making a home that is just filled with all those things. I think that's mostly what I'm like thinking about and working towards right now. And then Katura, what's the best way for people to find you or connect with you? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they can find me on Twitter at Katura Abigail. Also on Instagram, also at Katura Abigail. And then I blog on Substack and also just through Blogger. And it's the social porcupine. And if they're interested specifically in like my social security number stuff, which I don't necessarily write a lot about, but there, there's some basic information there. That's all the girl who doesn't exist. And of course, um, my blog and my Twitter all have my email. So people are free to email me. I love talking to people if they want to reach out and just ask questions about stuff. At some point, I may end up doing more courses and classes similar to Living Room Academy. I just have to figure out what those will look like since I'll be married and not living on my own. Just like what kind of classes I can facilitate. But I do hope to do more more like that at some point. You ever imagine doing mixed gender courses? Um, I would as long as um, I have like the housing for that. Uh, I did offer weekend mixed gender classes back with my living room academy and i had um i think i did one one weekend course of that but i didn't have very many guys that were actually interested in it and then the guys that were interested in it didn't end up showing up <laughs> um but uh if i have like plenty of housing for that i definitely wouldn't mind it i just for the summer courses i was like well let's keep this simple i don't need a bunch of teenage boys in the mix but in the future i i would definitely love to have a wider variety of and Katura, one of my last questions is, I saw on Twitter that you participated in some, I guess, conferences or with Paul Kinsworth. And what did you present or what were your experiences with those kind of larger gatherings like? Oh, yeah, those were very beautiful. Um, well, the Kinsworth family was just a very humble, inspiring family to be around. And um, I know they... Uh, they gave us all a lot of encouragement just in our different projects we were doing. And their writing also is very beautiful. Like, it's very rare that you meet an author and you're like, oh my, I got to buy all their work. But after I met him, I was like, I, mean, I hadn't heard of him before the conference for some reason, I, which is kind of surprising because his writing is like right up my alley. But after, yeah, after we left the conference, I went and bought his books and I've been reading through some of his novel, uh, his first novel. It's been really intriguing. But um, Andy and I presented together, and Andy just talked on like his his nomadism and how it like led him to a place of like belonging and home. And then I talked a little bit on 
my upbringing without a social security number and impacted me just spiritually and mentally and how how it um created like a a sort of different way of thinking about society and how in order to like live in this way that I had to come to understand what like sacrifice means and what trying to recall it's been so long since the speech (laughs) but yeah just like my my philosophy that was developed because of my upbringing and then also um afterwards Paul Keynes North asked this woman to some of the women in the group to speak again and we all spoke on like different parts of what makes a home makes a home basically and I think his wife spoke on like plants and I shared my views on gossip and there was another woman that spoke on willow and the uh, metaphysical connection she saw with willow and just, yeah, it was just, that was a very beautiful panel. All the women that were speaking on their different, their different understandings of what they were doing as women. And I can turn to my last question. You, you just mentioned the word sacrifice. What do you mm-hmm. mean by that? Or what, can you expand on that? Um, I think mostly in that category, I was in, in that instance, I was talking about how like life isn't meant to be this journey of finding out who we are as much as finding out how we're meant to serve. Because we're all born knowing who we are. We 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 know it better than anything else. We know who we are. And yet like Hollywood has deceived us with this lie that we don't know who we are. And that we must know who we are. If we don't, then maybe we ought to do what society tells us to do and like get this college degree and get this job and do all these societal expectations to find out who we are. When really we need to forget about ourselves and deny the flesh and and sacrifice the flesh in a way that helps us see other people and see past ourselves to the world at large. And how in doing so, we become more content in who we are and have no desire to even dig deep into ourselves anymore. Hitura, have you ever explored kind of Asian traditions like Buddhism or Hinduism or some of those aesthetic practices? Um, I haven't explored them in the sense where I was interested in converting, but I've definitely read bits and pieces of all that sort of stuff. And I love it. Like I, I find it all very beautiful and and large pieces of truth in it. I, I definitely think there's something to a lot of those ways. Um, I read Kalaji Brown's uh, The Prophet not just a couple, a few years ago, I think it was, and felt heavily influenced by that. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of friends who practice those different things. And I, of course, I've had deep conversations with them. And like, there's never any disagreement in those conversations. They're very beautiful conversations. And then, Katura, is there anything else you want to add on a final note for people to know about you or what you want people to think about? Yeah, I, I guess mostly it's just that when it comes to these different things, everyone has, doesn't have to like do it in a specific way. It doesn't have to necessarily be done like, oh, like you're not doing it wrong just because it doesn't look exactly like how I'm doing it. Maybe I have a specific way of cleaning my house or baking my food or wearing my clothes but you can still be beautiful and you can still uh have a way about you that is less about yourself and more about your community without being so focused on the 
the actual what what makes the aesthetics. You can still be like aesthetically pleasing without being like like how one person views that. I suppose. Yeah, this, this has just been fun and enjoyable. Great, Katura. I really appreciate your time. Yeah.